I have a truck. I bought a truck a year and a half ago. Her name is Leanne. She has an extended cab. She has an eight-foot bed. Uh, she's got towing capacity for days. Um, I love her more than I love most people. I'm just being honest. I'm sorry. And the original intent for uh, my wife and I is we would invest in a truck because I use it so much for work. And so a lot of times I end up pulling big things because, as I said, she's got towing capacity for days. I can get a, a big trailer with three tons of stuff and drive around. Now, my gas mileage will be like a smidge over six miles per gallon, but it's still, you know, it, it can pull pretty nicely. And it's got space inside and you can throw a truck truck camper on the back like the bed is huge if you're going to get a truck in an eight-foot bed i don't work for bowman but i'm just saying like if you if that's what you're going to do look for the eight-foot bed it's very uh convenient it's tough to parallel park i will say but um i tow things a lot and and uh, at work we have an eight by 20 trailer and so when you have a truck that has an extended cab and an eight-foot bed and a 20-foot trailer on the back you're big like Leanne's a big girl, okay? She's curvy, and uh, she takes up a lot of space, okay? And recently, a couple months ago, I was pulling in a 20-foot trailer behind Leanne, and we were uh, we were going uh, somewhere in in the country that I'm not super familiar with. You know, that's usually what happens. It's an occupational hazard. You drive somewhere, and uh, you're on a road you didn't realize. Whenever I'm pulling a big trailer and it's got a lot of weight, and I've got I've got Leanne. I like to keep us on the on the right hand lane, and I don't want to have to weave in and out of traffic because I'm big, right? And so I try to stay in that right hand lane, just so if I have to get on or off or whatever it is. Also, I'm not like a speed racer if I'm pulling a lot of stuff. Not that Leanne couldn't. Don't test her, okay? But I'm just saying I like to be safe in the right hand lane. And there was uh, a recent trip where I was on I-70 which is in the Midwest somewhere. Don't ask me to point it out on a map. I just know it was I-70 because there was a merging and then there was highways that came together and then they split. And they came, you know. So I'm trying to keep up with where I'm supposed to go. And there's this one road where I'm like, oh, I'm going to get in the right-hand lane. And so I put my blinker on and I take my big girl and, and the trailer behind her and we get in the right-hand lane. And right after I got – and it was crazy busy traffic, by the way. Like it was one of those – you don't want to be weaving out in and out of stuff because it's – it's compact and there's construction and it's the kind of construction where they have like the cement walls right up against it. So you feel like you're driving on a luge track, you know, like it's it's like that kind of driving. And I pull over to the right lane and I realize as soon as I've gotten in the right lane that I've made a terrible mistake because the right lane ends in like a half mile. And I'm like, oh, and as soon as I realize it, you know, so I you know, someone else got over in front of me and I'm like, oh, so I put my blinker on. Wouldn't you know that like. No one's letting me in. Like, no, like the lane is coming to an end and there's no gap big enough for Leanne and I in the trailer. And so I'm slowing down and I got the, and you know, you think in traffic, like if you see someone, someone's going to go, all right, let's, they'll have, uh, they'll, they'll have mercy on my poor soul. In Indiana, that did not happen. The road, the, the cars just kept coming to the point that the, 
the lane ended and I had to come to a complete stop with my blinker on, waiting to get over. And it, I started counting as my bl blood pressure went up. It was two minutes and 37 seconds that I sat there until finally there was a gap where enough people got over and someone let me in. And I'm just, I'm like, I want to, you know, you, you're doing the double dutch with the jump rope. You want You want to get in, but you can't because everybody just keeps coming. And I'm like, do I have to, is this the proportionate response to the small mistake I made that the world goes by and I'm just stuck off on the side? I'm forgotten, ignored, cast out. You don't belong in Interstate 70, my friend. Not with that truck and that trailer together. No, sir. You are off on the side roads because we are busy and fast and don't leave space for people as big as you. That's how I felt. I felt struck out from the rest of everybody else. I think that was, I think that was sometimes in conversation. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation like this where you're sitting with four or five people and there's a conversation and they're talking about something and then it spurs something that, ooh, a story I want to say or a point I want to make. And you're like, and now you've stopped listening to the conversation because you're just ready to jump in with your thing that's going to like be the cherry on top of the whole conversation. But you can't get in. Like they keep going back and forth. And you're ah, ah, no, Okay, go ahead. And they've moved on. And you still have your point. The conversation's two minutes down the road. And you're like, guys, I just want to make this point. And they look at you like, yeah, that was like two minutes ago, man. What do you like? What, where were you? And you're like, I couldn't get in. You were all talking and I was stuck off on the side. We decided uh, as a preaching team that it would be interesting to look at the stories of Scripture, not from the perspective of the people who've been writing them, but from the people who have maybe been stuck off on the side. The people that have been forgotten. They were there. They were there for the very story that we know and usually know pretty well. But their story is rarely told. And if we believe that these stories are true and the stories we go through we believe are true, then they probably have multiple perspectives. And those perspectives can be helpful. How many times have you heard someone tell a story and then someone chimes in with another detail from another perspective? You're like, oh, that makes way more sense now. The original story seemed to have a couple holes, or at least you had a hard time just swallowing it whole. And then someone jumps in with a, well, from my vantage point, actually what happened? And you go, oh, yeah. The Bible is full of extras. People off on the side, barely referenced. Little do we know them. And over the next couple of weeks, Pastor Tony Schaefer and myself are going to take a look at a couple of extras in Scripture and figure out what perspectives might have we missed. Who do we need to hear about and hear from, and what can we learn from these people? So, if you have your Bibles, or if you have a Bible app, if you can go to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to tell you a story from a perspective of a guy named Ananias. Ananias is so obscure that when I brought him up to the preaching team, they all thought I was talking about another guy named Ananias in the scriptures. And I'm like, no, 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 this Ananias. And they're like, well, there's only, there's hardly anything about him. I'm like, exactly. Let's find out what the story was like from the perspective of this Ananias. So in Acts chapter 9, let me give you a, a, just a brief overview to get us to where we are now. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, and it's the first book that's not a gospel. Okay, so the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are written by people who had first-hand accounts of walking with Jesus. 
from the time of his birth all the way to his death and resurrection. That's what the four Gospels are. Acts is essentially the historical version of what happens after. It's the, it's the sequel. Okay, Acts is the historical sequel to the Gospels. And so what happens in chapter 1 of Acts is Jesus ascends to heaven. Which, I mean, that's, that's, tough. that's, a, that's a good start. Okay, Jesus ascends to heaven. Chapter 2, there is a thing called Pentecost. It's where a bunch of people are gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes down and everyone sees it and there's some confusion. And Peter, of course Peter, the disciple, steps up and starts to preach of Jesus, of God with skin on, coming to love and to redeem all of us, bringing us back to full relationship with our Creator. And on that day, it says on that day, 3,000 people were added to their number. It was a big day for the church. If 3,000 people were added to our number, we'd need a, we need a couple more services. Or we'll just open the doors and have them in the Connection Center. I don't know what we would do. But then from the next uh, three chapters, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, there are stories of the church continuing to grow. However, there is now an antagonist. Because the religious leaders of the day did not like the fact that this message was spreading and the church was growing. Now, why? Why would you ask that? Because the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these, these religious leaders of the day had worked their way in politically to have power. They stood on the same level and were respected by kings and emperors and judges. They were on the same level when it came to social standing to the point that the better the Jewish school you went to, the better the Talmud, the better Jewish training you got, the more highly you respected you were socially. Judaism had stepped into this political power role and there had become a bit of a power grab in uh, New Testament times. And so the reason that the church spreading I mean, why would, if you believe different than what I believe, why do I care? Well, for them, they cared about this message because it decentralized and upset the apple cart, if you will, of their power. And if a large number of people who had respected them and lifted them to their place of power were now believing an entirely new gospel and now saying, you're actually, you're wrong because there's a Jesus who completes what you're talking about. There's a Messiah who's come and there's a new one that we should follow, you don't get to decide what's right. He's decided what's right. There is an upsetting, and so they are upset. And so in Acts 3, 4, and 5, while the church is spreading, the leaders, the, um, the, the, the people that are getting in trouble, right? They're, they're, do, they're doing stuff. The Peters, the apostles, all of them, they, they're being flogged. They're being reprimanded. They're being jailed. And there's multiple stories where um, as they're flogged and jailed, the jails opened. God, God's power has set them free. And then in the, all the way up to chapter 7 of Acts, there's just been a flogging and an oppression of the church as it's growing like wildfire. The powers that be cannot stop the Holy Spirit. God's power is bigger than political power. Amen. Right? And so we get to chapter 7 of Acts, and there's a man named Stephen. 
And Stephen gives a powerful sermon in front of the religious leaders. And for the first time in this, rather than just a flogging or a jailing or a sending away, Stephen is actually killed for his faith. He is martyred in front of the religious leaders. In the last verse of chapter 7 of Acts, it says that Saul, one of their young leaders, one of their most zealous young leaders of the religious leaders of that time, oversaw and stood and watched as Stephen was martyred and killed. And so that's where we learn about the story of Saul. And in chapter 8, his vigilance continues as he tries to uh, decentral. They, they would find people who were followers of Christ and send them away, decentralize them, get them out of here. We, you know, you, if you're going to grow, fine, do it somewhere else. This is our space. They are protecting power. That's what happens when people have power in your lives, in your worlds, in our world. When that power is challenged, most of the time, the reaction is to send away, to separate, to oppress to demean because people who have power a lot of times want to keep that power. And so Saul is a vigilant decentralizer of the gospel. Yet in spite of political power, God's power is stronger. This is, this isn't even the story and we've got a sermon, right? And so we get to chapter nine of acts. And what happens is Saul is going from one place to another and he's on a road called the Damascus road. And a bright light knocks him down out of nowhere. And he hears a voice that says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And after that encounter, Saul is blinded. He's blinded. And his advisors and the people traveling with him have to take him to a place because he can't see and he can't do his work anymore. He's, he's recovering, only he's not. He's just blind. And that is where we meet Ananias, the very obscure Ananias. Church historians believe, there's a, there's a uh, story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 where it says that Jesus sent out 72 disciples into the world. A lot of church historians will mark that Ananias was probably one of those 72. So he was a follower of Jesus and had been for a bit and actually was sent out to be a light to the world whilst Jesus was still here on earth. And so Ananias was sent that they, they believe that's who this Ananias is, but we get to verse 10 and we haven't read anything about him yet, but here's how the story begins with Ananias in Damascus. There was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I'm going to pause right there. If you grabbed uh, 
if you grabbed an outline when you came in, everything was filled in. But let me tell you, I to get that printed in time for Sunday, I have to turn it in on Wednesday. Well, stuff's happened since Wednesday. So I've got some addendums, if you will. I put on there, who is Ananias? And then the second thing I put is, is he rooted? Is he rooted? What do I mean by that? If Jesus' ministry on earth was three years, which we believe it to be, and Ananias was one of his followers, and this happens shortly after Jesus' ascension, that means we can maybe guess, put around that Ananias has been a follower of Jesus for three, we'll say three years. And if we know that the disciples uh, of Jesus typically were pretty young, you know, when when Jesus uh, chose his disciples, they were people who were trying to be apprentices to other rabbis and they were told they weren't good enough. That's kind of the, the beauty of Jesus calling the disciples as him saying, I think you can be like me. So these people who are downtrodden don't feel like, like they, they measure up. Jesus says, no, I think you measure up. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. This is Ananias' story. So he follows, but he's pretty young. So let's say Ananias is in his 20s and he's been a follower of Jesus for three years. And in that following of Jesus, all of a sudden there is a call for him to do something outlandish. Crazy. Scary. If he's been a follower for three years, is he rooted? Is he rooted in what he believes and the relationship that he has with God? Because if you're not rooted, no matter how long, you could, have been a, you could be a follower of Jesus for 50 years. But to tend to that soil, to have roots down in who you believe you are in him is what gives you the confidence and the understanding that you should follow when he calls. I'll even back up here. How about this? We'll go back to the red letters if you've got a Bible. Verse uh, 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. For Ananias to do what he's called to do, he has to be able to hear God. Some of you know that I uh, DJ weddings sometimes. It's really my first calling. I mean, I really bring the party, guys. It's really something. But in this one company that I work for, we have a, a, a uniform we have to wear, which is basically a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie. It's just the standard suit uniform you have to wear anytime you DJ for them. Now, if I DJ for somebody else, that's when I, pull, I get edgy and I pull out my gray suit, okay? I've got one black suit. Um... And if I wear it three or four times in a row, sometimes it stands up on itself. Um, but I also only have a couple white shirts. And this last weekend, I had uh, two dirty white shirts. And I didn't have time to take them to the dry cleaners. I don't like to iron. So that's usually why I, I, mean, I, I get lazy. And I'm like, can I just take this to the dry cleaner and have them iron it? Um, but I ran out of time for that. And so I think it was on Friday. I was like, okay, I'm going to throw my shirt in the wash. I'll wash it. So it doesn't uh, reek. And then I'll throw it in the dryer, and it's one of those wrinkle-free ones. By the way, what a farce is wrinkle-free, okay? 
A lot of you men own wrinkle-free clothes. They do not. They are not wrinkle-free at all. So I put it in the wash. I put it in the dryer. And then I woke up on Saturday and it was sitting in the dryer, which means wrinkles. Right. And I've got an hour at home. So I think, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the, the shirt back in the dryer. I'm going to put the dryer on. As soon as I hear it go off, I'm going to take it out. And I'm going to hang it up. And that will get it good enough so I can wear it. So there are no wrinkles. Anybody, anybody guilty of this little trick before? If I just throw it in there, turn it on, let it go, it'll get rid of the wrinkles. So I threw it in. I turned it on. I went in the other room. I started to prepare for this sermon. And I prayed to God, give me an analogy, God, if you can. Show me some analogy that would help me teach your word tomorrow. And an hour later, Michelle said, did you ever get your shirt out of the dryer? I was like, ah, dang it. I went in. And I'm like, how did I not hear it? I've done, laundry is done in our house regularly. Do you know how many times I hear the buzzer go off for the laundry? Zero. Because I'm not listening for it. Because I don't care. I'll get it later. And it was crazy that like that day I needed to hear the shirt, the buzzer go off so I get the shirt out so the wrinkles would be gone. I was trying to listen to it, but I had not practiced listening to it. And therefore, I missed it. Are you getting the analogy? God provides in the dumbest ways possible. If you're Ananias, you have to get used to listening for God. Because there may come a time when God calls you to do something major. You have to get uh, in the habit, in the discipline of listening for God. Because there may be an opportunity that God calls you to here in Clarkston, in Michigan, anywhere else. And if you're not used to listening for him, you might miss it. That's a story from Ananias. He followed intently, fervently to the point that Jesus actually sent him out to do work. And at this moment, this key moment in the history of the church, when God called to him, of course he heard him. If God called you to something today, would you hear him? Would you be able to hear what he says? Would you be intently listening to God? Or when that happened, might you miss it? Until someone an hour later says, did you hear the call? You're like, oh, I, was, I wasn't used to listening for that voice. That's why the regular practice of silence, the regular practice of prayer, the regular practice of solitude, of meditation, these disciplines that I, I feel like I'm just harping on over and over, the reason I harp on them, they're not for their own sake. We practice these so that when God calls, we are ready and we can hear. The last time I spoke, three, four weeks ago, I talked about creating space, creating the spaces and getting used to listening for God because in those things, there are rich moments where God can get us to grow out of them. Are you practicing that? And if not, Three minutes a day for the next week. Come back and talk to me. Let's do this together. 
It's not, it doesn't have to be pie in the sky, spiritual, it's esoteric, hard to understand. Just sit quietly for three minutes. I know it's hard. I know some of your, maybe your kids dressed themselves for church today and then ate their own breakfast and got in the car ready for you as soon as it was time to go to church. Or maybe you had to clean seven rooms in four minutes and your shirt's on backwards right now. I don't know. So I get that it's hard to create those spaces, but if we get in the practice of that, when God calls, we can hear. Got it? Let me go on to the next part. I'll read this again from verse 13. Lord Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. On your outlines, I originally had put uh, what is Ananias' comfort zone. Strike that from the record. I'm, I'm less concerned about his comfort zone because of uh, some extra study I've done when it comes to uh, Jewish practice. In Jewish practice, the blessing is a big deal in families, in, in, uh, in any type of movement. Giving the blessing is important. And many times in Jewish uh, tradition, in ceremonies, um, part of the blessing is making sure that there is human touch. Was at a Jewish wedding a couple weeks ago? The parent, the rabbi had the parents come up and make sure that they put their hands on the couple. And he said, we're putting the hands on the couple because in our tradition, we believe that the blessing is passed on through human touch. It's why in Genesis chapter 27, there's a story of Jacob and Esau. And, and you'll have to go back and read if you don't. I'll give you the cliff notes here. There's two brothers. The younger, the older brother is supposed to get the blessing from the dad, but the dad is kind of blind. The mom wants to help the younger son deceive the dad. And so to do so, she actually puts um, a fur on the younger son's arms because the older son is furry. And at one point, the, the younger son goes to the dad. and The dad has to feel, has to touch him. And in that, he gives him the blessing. Five chapters later, there's a story where Jacob is wrestling with God. And God says, you need to let go of me. And he says, I will not let go until you bless me. And God touched his hip. It says, the Bible actually says it, that God touched his hip. And I'm like, well, they're wrestling. Of course they're touching. But they made a point to say he touched his hip. Why? Because a blessing oftentimes goes along with a touch. And it's not just that the blessing goes along with a touch. It's that the blessing is finite. Jacob leaves after stealing the blessing from Isaac, the dad. Esau comes in shortly after, and Isaac realizes that he's given the blessing to the wrong son, and he's angry. And Esau says, can't you just bless me? And he said, no, I already blessed Jacob. Like, I don't have any more. Blessings aren't uh, infinite. And maybe you feel that right now. There are people in your life that God is calling you to bless. And you're like, I've only got so many blessings to give. I can't bless anymore. I only have so much to give. And if you're there today, I hope that this service has been a recuperation, a rejuvenation. May the spirit of God fill you with the blessings that the rest of this world needs. That's what we're here for. So Ananias, maybe this wasn't about his comfort zone. I read, read back through it. 
where the Lord, he says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Is it possible that Ananias is saying, I only have so many blessings, I'm going to give it to this guy who's been oppressing your people, who's overseen the deaths of your people, this guy? Maybe in your life, God is calling you to bless someone. Maybe with resources or finances, maybe with time and love and energy. There is someone in your world that God, that you are the conduit that God wants to use. And you're going, this guy, that's who you want me to waste my blessing on? Maybe Ananias is saying, I've only got so much to give. You really want to send me there? I don't think this, rereading it through, I don't think this is about comfort zone for Ananias. I think this is about a efficiency of resources for Ananias. I have so many blessings. I'm going to waste it on the one who's trying to destroy your church. I'm going to the last part. We're running out of time, so I'll go faster. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We know this story already, but in that moment, Saul doesn't know if he's ever getting his sight back again. He doesn't know it. He's, maybe he's hopeful. When, when uh, God reached out to Ananias, he said that Saul has been praying. When you're desperate, I don't know, what your, it doesn't matter what your religion is. When you're desperate, a lot of times you pray. Saul is praying, but he doesn't know. Maybe you're dealing with a thing right now. Could be health, could be relationship, could be work, could be a loss. And you don't know. You don't know. In that moment, hands are placed on him. A blessing is placed on him. Because Ananias listened. And shortly after Ananias comes and blesses Saul, his sight is returned. I'm not going to give you the rest of the Old Testament. I'll just tell you, most of the Old Testament is written by the guy who got his sight back. Most of the Old Testament churches that we hear about, read about, learn from, is from the guy who wasn't sure if he'd ever see again. Most of the, Old, of the New Testament comes, did I say Old Testament the first couple of times? My bad. <laughs> so some, next time someone's going to go, uh, Greg, excuse me, wrong one. Sorry, yeah. Most of the New Testament and the New Testament churches and all the ways that God works from this point on in the history of the church is because Ananias listened. He could have not listened. He could have not been in practice to listen. He could have said, 
I only have so many blessings to give, and I got to be honest, this guy's not worth it. Forget it. I'm not doing it. But he went. And the last piece, I, I do want to point this out real quick. As you read the rest of the history of the uh, early church and Acts and all the writings of Saul, whose name was turned to Paul and Peter, not one more reference is made to any other relationship between Saul and Ananias. This obscure name who shows up in nine verses in Acts, this, this obscure fellow, this extra is never mentioned again. I sometimes wonder if, as the church developed, is there any small part of him that wanted a little more credit? Is there any small part? Is, is there, let's make this real. Is there any small part of you that feels like you're not getting your due? Did you walk in today a part of something, coming from something, feeling like you are throwing yourself 110% into something and you're getting 5% of the credit. And you're like, ah, I just want to be acknowledged a little bit. Do you carry that with you? Because I'll be honest, I carry that a lot. I know, I know it's hard to believe that I carry that type of grudge being as holy as I am. <laughs> That's too many laughs. Uh, but I carry that a lot. Why? Why am I not recognized for this thing I'm doing? How come no one's talking about? How come no one sees? Does anybody even acknowledge? Does anybody know what's happening? What I'm doing? Do they get it? Do they get that I'm throwing myself into this? Maybe you feel and carry that. And maybe we could take solace in the fact that Ananias, who was never spoken of again, was the key flagpost moment for the rest of the New Testament church because the Apostle Paul led so many churches that grew to the point that we now exist here today. Ananias, maybe it wasn't about the credit. It's about being part of something bigger and beautiful. God's called us, and maybe you feel like you're an extra in your calling. I know I do. Sometimes I feel like I'm just on the side, and I'm like, I want, I want more credit. I, I would. As an extra, God calls us, and invites us to be a part of something beautiful. It's not about what we get. It's about his glory. That's a hard thing to swallow. Sometimes my little ego monster wants to eat more. Feed me, feed me, feed me. But if I can step back from a second, I realize that the 110% that I'm putting into, whatever I'm putting into, is all for his glory. All of it. One, a thousand percent all of it. Maybe you have to die to that little piece inside you today that says, I want more acknowledgement. I want more recognition. I need someone. Maybe you need to die to that today. I don't know how to do that other than to hand it to the one who gets the credit and realize that we're a part of a kingdom. That's what we learned from this extra today.